Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out there, Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. Hello, readers. Eric Weiner is an award-winning journalist, speaker, and best-selling author. His newest book is The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Eric, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing great. So, Eric, I guess we should start this conversation out by giving people a baseline of what you think of philosophy. So, what exactly is philosophy for the layman out there? That's an excellent, simple question, and I'll give you a simple answer. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. That's literally what it means from the ancient Greek philosophos. And it's really that simple, I think. It's this activity. It's not a body of knowledge. It's an action and it's loving wisdom, not necessarily acquiring it, but pursuing it. And you focus on 14 of the most famous philosophers of all time for this book. How did you settle on the 14 whose ideas you expand on in Socrates Express? Yeah. Good question. Well, they're not the most famous of all time. They're sort of a highly curated list, I would say, in a personal list of mine. They are philosophers who spoke to me, really, who were actually very human. You know, we think of philosophers as almost like saints, especially, you know, the ones from ancient times and put them on a pedestal. But all of these philosophers, men and women, were human. And by that, I mean, they were flawed, like you and I. Well, maybe you're perfect. I'm not sure. But me, at least, I'm flawed. And they were, too. They suffered. They were neurotic. They had some really weird, quirky tendencies. Jean-Jacques Rousseau had a tendency to expose his buttocks in public. That was an issue. Arthur Schopenhauer, German philosopher, spoke to his poodle in public an awful lot. <laughs> and don't get me started on Nietzsche, the bad boy of philosophy, the philosopher of exclamation points. He, you know, so they were all really human, fully fleshed out figures, and they all shared this love of wisdom, and I just found it contagious. Let's talk a little bit about Nietzsche through what you consider to be your favorite movie of all time, Groundhog Day, which is also one of my all-time favorites. Why do you all consider right. Groundhog Day the most philosophical movie ever made, and how does it bear similarities to a theory created by Nietzsche in 1881? Okay, can we assume that everyone listening knows about the movie Groundhog Day? I would hope so. If not, they're probably just going to go ahead and have to turn off the conversation. <laughs> okay. So Bill Murray and his recurring life in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, stuck in hell, basically. And it's my favorite movie. It's a philosophical movie because Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, comes back day after day in the same place he doesn't want to be. And he's stuck in this time loop and he goes through these different phases. You know, at first he's just disbelief. He can't believe this is happening. It's like a bad dream, you know, and then he tries to sort of game the system and get women to sleep with him and to make money and take advantage of the situation. Then he gives into despair and ultimately he accepts his fate and actually helps other people, teaches people how to do things and helps some old ladies whose car is broken down, things like that. And that's when he gets out of the time loop. So it's very Buddhist. It's very philosophical. And you're right. It closely parallels. I wouldn't say it's based on, but it closely parallels 
a theory by Nietzsche called eternal recurrence. Nietzsche's theory is like Groundhog Day in that he believes that the universe repeats itself and our lives repeat themselves over and over for all of eternity. And there's some scientific basis for this belief, not fully formed and fully concluded, but there's something to it. I think Nietzsche meant it really as a thought experiment. So if I were to say, Trey, what if some messenger from heaven came down and said to you, Trey, I have news for you, your life, everything you've done, good, bad, ugly, up until this point is going to repeat itself over and over forever. Would you say, oh, that's great? Or would you be bumming that you've got to repeat everything? Probably go through the wave of emotions that Phil Connors did. Right, right. And the difference between Nietzsche and the movie Groundhog Day is in Nietzsche's theory, you can't edit this life. It's sort of just, it is what it is. You can't make improvements and go back. And really what I find fascinating about this thought experiment is it forces us really to confront the choices we make in our lives and ask, would we want this for eternity? Yeah, you're going to drink that bottle of tequila and that's going to feel good, but you're going to have to relive that hangover for all of eternity as well. That's a fascinating concept, and I am a big believer also in what Nietzsche calls essential suffering. What exactly is essential suffering? I mean, he thought that we suffer for the wrong reasons. We sort of suffer neurotically. And for him, essential suffering was when you were suffering for the right reasons, to make a better version of yourself. And he walked the walk. He was sort of this wonderkin who rose up in the ranks of German philosophy and actually landed a primo tenured position at a university in Switzerland, actually. And he walked away. I mean, just walked away from it, moved to the Alps, to a little village, and became this sort of feral philosopher, even though he was very sickly and had terrible headaches and stomach upset. He persevered, and he thought that suffering need not be bad if we suffer for the right reasons. Well, and the bottom line, too, is that everybody goes through hardships. The most successful people, they take lessons from those hardships and plow forward, maybe gets into stoicism a little bit as well. But I think that he was really onto something with essential suffering. I also found it interesting, Eric, that Nietzsche, and I did not know this previous to reading your book, that he believed every truth should be accompanied by at least one laugh. I love that theory there. (laughs) What is the most Nietzsche has amused you in reading what he had to say? Well, his style of writing, which, you know, you think of philosophers as being kind of dense and obtuse, difficult to read, and a lot of them are, but not Nietzsche. He writes in this sort of poetic style, and he uses lots of exclamation points. I'm reading him, and like every sentence practically has an exclamation point. I thought that was like a 21st century invention, you know, the overuse of exclamation point. So he called himself an aeronaut of the spirit, and he brought that to everything he did. I don't know if he was really as funny as he thinks he was, because I can't think (laughs) of anything humorous he did, because he really just put himself out there. He's been called not the philosopher of the head or the philosopher of the heart, but the philosopher of the gut, of the viscera. And he believed that we hold back too much and we rely on reason too much. This is another thread through all of my a lot of my philosophers, is they appreciated reason and logic, but they also saw its limitations and thought we were not fully human if we lived by reason alone. 
So I guess it would be good to explain to people that the way that you lay this book out is that you cover each of these 14 philosophers and you title the chapter on each how to do something like this philosopher. So for Mm -hmm. Marcus Aurelius, it's how to get out of bed like Marcus Aurelius. Your daughter made a fantastic observation about what gets her out of bed in the morning, and it's similar to how Aurelius felt about it too. What did she have to say, and how does that compare to Aurelius? She needed to be motivated to get out of bed because I observed that on weekdays I had to peel her out of bed for school and on weekends, you know, no school and she would spring out of bed. And for her, it was all about the motivation as it was for Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor in roughly first century AD and extremely powerful man ruled over quarter of the world at the time. And yet he couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And he writes about this in his memoirish book called Meditations. The phrase kept popping up. It jumped out at me, you know, when you have trouble getting out of bed, do this and that. And he wrestles with it and he ultimately concludes, unlike my daughter, that it's not the fun of a weekend that gets him out of bed, but his sense of duty, really. Not obligation, but duty. I think there's a difference. His sense of duty, not as a emperor, as a Roman, or even as a philosopher, but as a human being to help other people. That's what gets him out of bed. Why is Aurelius's Meditations unlike any book you've ever read? Because it's not a book. It wasn't intended as a book. It was his diary, fragments. I call it Roman refrigerator notes. It was really notes to himself. He did not intend them to be published. And if you've ever kept a journal or a diary or read someone else's, you know that these are very confessional and very honest. And this book, you know, which was written 2000 years ago, the book that's not a book is just so honest, you know, and he's self-effacing and he lays it on the line that he's just doesn't think much of himself. And he just sort of goes back and forth in this Hamlet way about whether he was a good person or not and what's wrong with him. And it, it reminded me of me, in fact. Hmm. There is a sentence from a book by Jacob Needleman called The Heart of Philosophy that you cite in your book. And the quote goes like this, Our culture has generally tended to solve its problems without experiencing its questions. Why does this sentence impact you so profoundly, Eric? Because it's simple, and it's to the point, and I think it's true. I think that we, as a society, rush towards solutions or pleasure, or sometimes both. And we don't sit with questions. We don't experience them. And this is partly because I think we have a short attention span, because of technology, because we value answers more than questions. Voltaire said, if you want to know a man, you should find out what questions he asks, not what answers he gives. And you don't hear many politicians out there saying, I don't know, or phrases like that. We look to our leaders and to our colleagues for answers when really what Needleman is suggesting is you can't come up with a good answer if you don't sit with the question for a while. And that takes time, right? I mean, if you really want to think about what it means to lead a good life or whether you really should be working where you're working, I mean, all sorts of questions. You've got to let them marinate. And We don't seem too willing to do that these days. That's a part of the chapter that's titled How to Wonder Like Socrates. Socrates practiced something called crazy wisdom. What exactly is that? 
Crazy wisdom is a kind of shock therapy, and you see it in all sorts of traditions in Buddhism and Christianity and with Socrates. It's essentially going around and doing nutty things to shock people out of their stupor. The idea is that we're so stuck in a rut, Socrates believed, that it took crazy behavior <laughs> to get people out of it. So Socrates was annoying, you know, and he would annoy people the way a five-year-old might annoy you with their questions. You know, they'll ask if they can have ice cream for dinner and you say no. And they'll say, why? And you say, well, because it's bad for you. Why? <laughs> because it's got sugar. And the children's questions like Socrates annoy us not just because they're annoying, but because we don't really have good answers. And they sort of catch us in our ignorance. As somebody with a four and a five-year-old at home right now, I can confirm what you just said there, Eric. Okay. And uh, it's interesting to learn that Socrates led philosophy shift to look more inward. He also cared more about the method than knowledge, which I guess is evidenced by the fact that he literally did not write anything down. What was Socrates' method? What we're doing now, basically. Conversation, what has been called enlightened kibitzing, back and forth but in an open-ended way and in a sort of challenging way. And he thought that basically all philosophy should be done in the buddy system, in pairs at least, and in conversation. And he didn't really trust the written word. But his method is the method of a five-year-old, to keep challenging our assumptions. We say things and do things and hold these beliefs without really stopping to ask ourselves, well, where did they come from? I and mean, how do we know them to be true? We say that we respect this person, but do we know that we do? We say that we value courage in other people, but do we even know what courage is? And he was a stickler for definitions. He thought we just sort of bumble along pursuing objectives without defining terms first. Why are you a fan of departing a conversation by telling that other person something that has nothing to do with have a nice day or talk to you later, but rather take your time? Because I think that those empty phrases, we don't really mean have a nice day. We could care less. <laughs> but, you know, it was the philosopher, I think Wittgenstein, an Austrian philosopher who called philosophy the slow cure. Right, He thought all philosophers had to slow down. And I think that is the first step to being a philosopher. And when I say philosopher, I don't mean professor of philosophy. I mean what we're doing now, talking about what matters most in life. And you need to slow down to do that. So at the end of this conversation, instead of saying, great, have a nice day, I think we should say, take your time, slow down. A little reminder that might actually seep in. I love that, especially in this day and age where it's a bang-bang process from one thing to the next and reading headlines and formulating opinions on stuff. Occasionally, it is good to just kind of sit back, take a breath, allow things to come to you more versus feeling the need to reach out after everything. Yes. And, you know, at least one philosopher in my book named Simone Weil, a French philosopher from the 20th century, who wrote a lot about that, about waiting and about attention. And she thought that we're too active when we pay attention, that we concentrate, which she thought was different from paying attention. When you concentrate, you kind of tense up and you furrow your brow and narrow your gaze. And she thought that was just absurd, that real attention means actually being more passive, but completely receptive and open 
to what might enter your consciousness. You were once asked by a friend, Eric, what does success look like? And it stumped you into realizing that sometimes the best questions elicit no response at all. Why is that? See, I should respond to your question with silence because it was a good question. (laughs) (laughs) And that would indicate, Trey, that I am thinking about it and that checkmate, so to speak. Because if we just answer, we're just checking off a box sometimes. A question that you can answer so quickly is probably not a good question. And so my friend's question, what does success look like? You know, we were sitting on her deck in New Jersey talking about, I was complaining about my my lack of success. I needed more. And she, instead of saying, how can you do better? How can I help you? She said, well, what does success look like? And I was like, huh, I don't really know what it looks like. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it. I just was pursuing it. And something about the way she phrased it, you know, what does success look like, really made me stop and think and gave me pause in the best sense of the word. So what does success look like? I'm still wrestling with that question. Fair enough. We'll get back to you when I have an answer. (laughs) You turn to Rousseau to learn how to walk. Why is walking so physiologically important to humans? And how did Rousseau enlighten you on walking? Walking is, I think, what makes us human in a lot of ways. When we went from four legs to two, we changed it. It freed up our hands for writing and scratching and caressing and all sorts of wonderful things. And I noticed a link between philosophy and walking. Henry David Thoreau walked through the countryside of Concord and Immanuel Kant was a real stickler for routine. would go on a precise walk at 12.45 p.m. every day. But Rousseau was the walker's walker. I mean, he would walk 20 miles a day and think nothing of it through the Swiss countryside. And he'd carry a deck of playing cards with him and jot down ideas as they came to him. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, that he, his mind didn't work if his legs weren't moving. And I think that's true for a lot of us, that you know, if you've noticed you're ever stuck on an idea, something in your life isn't gelling, and you go for a long walk and it comes to you. There's lots of studies that back this up too, but there's something about the act of walking that leads to creativity and I would argue to a kind of philosophical contemplation too. It's interesting that there's also a proper speed, and I'm sure this is specific to the individual, that allows them to do their best thinking as well. Three miles per hour. That's the speed of a moderately paced walk. It's not power walking. And, you know, I think there's slow modes of transportation, like the train, which is a character in my book itself, Mm -hmm. uh, which is slow. It wasn't always slow. When train travel was first invented, people complained it was too fast, not like the carriage. So it's all relative. But for (laughs) us, taking a train versus a plane is taking the slow road. That's true. You dedicate a chapter to Thoreau, but what started as a chapter titled How to Live Alone Like Thoreau became How to Live Simply Like Thoreau, then How to Pretend to Live Simply and Alone While Sneaking Off to Your Mom's for Homemade Cookies Like Thoreau before settling on How to See Like Thoreau. Why did you finally settle on the latter? Because I realized that's what everything else was about, the solitude, the simplicity, even the home-baked cookies at his mom's. It was, it was all about seeing more clearly. 
he had these eyes that everyone talked about, that there was like a piercing gaze and he had this legendary vision that he could like reach into a bushel of pencils and pull out exactly a dozen by sight alone every time. And if you read his journals, on Walton Pond is what every ninth grader is that thrust upon them. But his journals, again, like Marcus Aurelius, it's where he's at his most honest and where he really writes about walking through the countryside, living on Walden Pond, and trying to see more beauty. We think of beauty as just something that's either there or not. That's either a beautiful painting or it's not. For Thoreau, God, it's a cliche that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but he would argue it's also in the heart of the beholder, that you have to sort of purify yourself, make yourself a good person, and then you'll see more, and change your perspective. He was big on shifting his gaze, even putting his head between his legs and looking at the world upside down, that we get into a visual rut too often. And he thought if you shift that perspective, your vision a little bit, how did he put it? If you do that, then every drop in a storm will be like a rainbow. Thoreau was good at shifting perspective, but he also saw things slowly, according to your book. What does that mean? That means that when we think of vision, we think that it's a kind of photography that what are you looking at right now, Trey? The sandwich that I just took a bite of. Okay. You're looking at the sandwich that you just took a bite of and you think your eye is taking a picture of the sandwich you've just taken a bite of and you're sort of just reading that photographic image. But that's not how vision works. It's actually more of a conversation that your eye and your brain detect waves of light coming off of the sandwich that you've taken a bite out of. And then you sort of interrogate this information unconsciously, actually, automatically. And you're like, uh, that looks familiar. I think it's a sandwich. I'll take another bite. And it is this conversation and you can slow it down. And we tend to jump to definitions because it's easy. It's quick. You know, it's a sandwich and you're not going to take a bite out of the microphone. That usually works. But Thoreau thought we paid a price for this rapid conversation with our eyesight. Hmm. And that is that we missed beauty. So we came to bird watching, for instance, he knew his birds. He was an early birder, but he also thought that you have to put your knowledge aside, not jump too quickly to a definition. Just look at something. Look at that bird and don't say, oh, that's a yellow bellied or I clearly don't know my birds, whatever it is, <laughs> and just appreciate the bird. And so, again, it's a slowing down of a process that we do just automatically, rapidly. I have to admit to being unfamiliar with Schopenhauer before reading this book. He was apparently a world-class pessimist. So why is he the right guy to show you how to listen? Because he had some redeeming values. He was a grump. He defined happiness as an absence of misery, and he lived alone all his life. And he read a whole philosophy of pessimism that we don't have time to get into. But he had this other side of him because he thought that the world is the worst of all possible worlds, he said, that we're living in. But there were two ways to escape it. One was through asceticism, the life of a monk. We'll just dispense with that. Forget that. The other one was art, and in particular, music. And he loved music, Rossini in particular, and he thought that when you listen to a beautiful piece of music, you leave this grim world behind and you enter a transcendent state. He was an early, I wouldn't say practitioner of Buddhism, but he read about Buddhism and Eastern religions at a time in the 19th century when not many people were doing it. 
So he had this kind of mystical side to him, even though he was so grumpy. And he also warned about the dangers of social media a good century and a half before social media. He warned about just reading books and taking in the ideas of others and not sitting with your own thoughts and your own voice. You gain insight on how to enjoy from the great philosopher of pleasure, Epicurus. But you write that we're misinformed about him. What do people generally get wrong about Epicurus? I think most people, when they hear Epicurus, first of all, half of them confuse it with Epicurus, the website. Um, but they, but that's part of the problem. Is And they think that he was a hedonist, and he was all about gourmet foods. And to be an Epicurean today means to enjoy fine wine and cuisine, spend lots of money on it. Epicurus, in fact, had the opposite view. He was an advocate of simple pleasures and simple living. And he said that even with the right company and the right frame of mind, even a simple pot of cheese could be a feast. And so he was interested in pleasure, but he defined it very differently from the way we do. We tend to think of pleasure as a presence. We're having pleasurable experiences. It's something active happening. He defined pleasure as an absence. Real pleasure, he thought, is when we're lacking disturbance. Nothing is disturbing us. And it sounds a little lame and weak, but the more I thought about it, I thought, well, there's something to that. Because what I really crave, what I think a lot of people crave, is peace of mind. And that is not a presence so much as an absence of suffering and disturbance. I love this quote, we fear what is not harmful and desire what is not necessary. I think that those uh, handful of words speak volumes right there. Does variety matter with pleasure? No, we think it does. And our entire consumer culture is predicated on the notion that pleasure varied equals pleasure increased. That's not what Epicurus thought. And I'm coming around to the belief that he was right, that if you think of pleasure as an absence of disturbance, you're either at peace or you're not. You can't multiply that. And having 27 different kinds of cutlery or whatever it is doesn't really increase your pleasure And Epicurus thought it made you a sort of pleasure addict. You know, say you went to a fancy restaurant in Austin. What's the fanciest restaurant in Austin? Fanciest restaurant in Austin, probably something like Barley, Swine, or Olamay. Okay, you go to Olamay, and you have a great expensive meal, and you have like the lobster thermidor, and it's just terrific. But now you're hooked, and you're dependent on the restaurant being open and serving you the food and earning enough money to pay for it and pleasing your boss so you can keep your job so you can get the lobster. And he thought that was too high of a price to pay. Somebody that you referenced a little bit earlier in our conversation, Simone Weil, her philosophy is the focus of the chapter on how to pay attention. But how was her idea of attention unique? Well, she thought of attention as much more passive in a way than we think of it. She thought of it as a kind of waiting, that it required patience, which seems to be a theme of our conversation today. And again, she thought that concentrating was different from attention, that concentration uh, was a kind of aggressive and constricting form of attention. The kind of attention she advocated was sitting back and waiting for something to come to you and not anticipating it and keeping your gaze, your mental gaze, wide open. And I think she's onto something, that we tend to make attention like this task that we have to do, and we make it 
very muscular and it's kind of silly that way. How tough is it to give pure attention to someone or something? And is there a good way to get there? Well, Simone Bay thought that attention was love. Attention and love, she, she thought, were synonymous. That when we give someone our full attention, we're giving them our love. And we don't do that very often. Children are expert at spotting counterfeit attention. If you're giving a child your time but not your attention, they feel really cheated as they should. How do you get there? That's a tough question. I think you have to see the other person as a person. And if you see a panhandler on the street, you have to see them as a human being first and not just someone, as Simone Weil put it, afflicted with suffering. The chapter on attention provided my favorite sentence in this entire book, and you just touched on it right there. And it is, there's a name for attention at its most intense and generous, love. I don't know if I've ever heard a better definition for love in my life. Were those Vey's words or your words? And if they were your words, how did you come to that? I'm channeling her. They're her ideas and my words. I think there's truth to it that what we really want from someone we love is their attention. And when we have their attention, we feel loved. Their full attention, you know, not their attention watching us, seeing if we load the dishwasher correctly or do our homework properly, <laughs> but just a loving attention. And the two ideas sort of merge at that point. Loving attention just becomes one thing, one word, like loving attention can be one word because it's really the same thing. I realize that words kind of fail us here, that we throw around the word attention loosely and we diminish it. Simone Weil didn't diminish it. She enlarged it and thought that enlarge attention to its natural conclusion and it becomes love. I think we also throw the word love around too much, and what we really mean is lust or something completely different from the actual process of love. Yes, and that's a whole other conversation, but <laughs> in the ancient Greeks had seven different types of love, and eros, or romantic love, was only one of them, so yeah. Gandhi is all about nonviolence, Eric, so why is he the best philosopher to learn how to fight from? Because he was a fighter. First and foremost, again, like Epicurus, widely misunderstood. He thought that the worst thing you could be was not to be violent, but to be a coward. He thought that we need to learn how to fight better. And the way to fight is to get in your opponent's face, but nonviolently, persistently and nonviolently. And there was nothing really passive about Gandhi's idea of nonviolent resistance. And he really abhorred the term pacifism. He was not a pacifist. He got into the sort of good trouble that John Lewis got into. And that's not a coincidence because Lewis had studied Gandhi and had traveled to India and met with Indians who were followers of Gandhi. This is years later, of course. So, yeah, Gandhi was a wily, tough character. I believe you called him aggressive passive, which is a term that I love, flipping around the passive <laughs> and aggressive. Right. He appeared to be aggressive because he was getting into good trouble, but really he had nothing but a good heart in it. <laughs> what is proper ritual conduct and how does it help explain why Confucius is a good source for better understanding kindness? So proper ritual conduct or ri, I believe it's called in Chinese, it's all those rules that annoy me personally. I usually shudder at the word ritual and rules and 
as I say in the book, proper ritual conduct, those are not three words that I like, and particularly not in that order. <laughs> so I was not predisposed to like Confucius, but I came to realize that he thought that it's not just going through the motions. You know, if you have to, when his day was straighten out your mat, sit up straight when you eat, I guess that still applies. You were doing it to cultivate mindfulness, number one, and to sort of honor the act of eating instead of just, I don't know, eating a sandwich doing an interview, you know, you're not really honoring the sandwich, for instance. And he also thought that ritual was sort of a container. This is my interpretation, but it's sort of a container for our emotions and that we really need ritual when we're at our most emotive. And if you think about it, when do we have rituals? We have rituals for sort of the best and the worst of our lives, you know, weddings, funerals, graduations. And the reason is because Without those rituals, we couldn't just make it up on the fly. We would have no container to hold our emotions, including, I don't know if it's an emotion, but the sentiment and the action of kindness. Hmm. You went to Stoic Camp in Wyoming. What did you learn there that flipped what you thought you knew about Stoicism upside down? Well, I think like many people, I had this image of the Stoic in the vernacular sense as a sort of Mr. Spock from Star Trek. It's just all logic. They don't feel anything. They don't complain. They're not loving or emotive. And that's not really true. It's partially true in that Stoics believe you should not let your emotions carry you away, but they certainly believed in a sort of loving kindness. And their goal was actually joy. The term joyful Stoic is not an oxymoron. What does Epictetus have to do with Stoicism, and as a result, your chapter on how to cope? Okay, so Epictetus was a Roman slave-turned-philosopher, which is a pretty good life trajectory. And he was mainly a teacher of philosophy, and he, again, didn't write anything as far as we know, but he had students jotting it all down. And so today you can read his book, known as The Handbook, and it's a slim little book, and it begins with this very simple sentence. Some things are up to us and some things aren't. And that sounds incredibly obvious, right? But we don't really know that. We, especially in this day and age, tend to think everything's up to us. Everything's under our control. And if we're not thinner and happier, it's because we're not working out enough or watching the right TV shows or whatever it is. And the Stoics, Epictetus in particular, believe that most of external life is outside of our control, but what we do control is our internal reaction to it. We control our internal world much more than we think and our external world much less than we think. What is voluntary deprivation? So that's occasionally uh, depriving yourself of good stuff. You know, it's maybe once a month sleeping on a hard floor instead of your bed or fasting for a day, whatever it is, so that you appreciate food again and you appreciate your bed again and should you find yourself without enough food or without a bed one day you will have prepared yourself for it i like to think of it as intermittent luxury which is a <laughs> flipping it on its head and i've noticed that if you've been uncomfortable camping for a week or whatever it is and then you get a hot shower and a meal and a bed all of a sudden the shower is like heaven and the the, the <laughs> Take out food from McDonald's is gourmet. So the Stoics were onto this. 
One of the last chapters is how to grow old like Simone de Bouvier. But I actually wanted to ask about your own philosophizing on growing old. As laid out in the last few pages of the chapter, you list 10 ways to grow old. Why is embracing the absurdity a part of this list? Because life is absurd in the philosophical sense, meaning there's no meaning to it. There's actually a school of philosophy called absurdism, and they believe that there is no meaning to be discerned from life or even to be made out of life, and that you have two choices when confronted with this. Basically, you can laugh or cry. (laughs) You can uh, despair or you can dance. And I think as you grow older and you face the end of your life, that absurdity sort of becomes more apparent to you. Because you've been maybe racing around, you know, accumulating possessions and accolades. And if you have any iota of self-realization, you will see that it all means nothing. And that it is absurd. And that one day you're going to die. And it's really up to us to either embrace that absurdity or go nuts, I think. You discuss how to die with the philosophy of Michel Dumontaine. Why did his words speak louder and more clearly to you than any of the other philosophers discussed in the Socrates Express? Because he was kind of a regular guy in a way. And by that, I mean, he never fully thought of himself as a philosopher, I think. He wrote essays. In fact, he invented the essay. And an essay comes from the French word assez, which means literally to try, an attempt. And that's when he sat down in his tower in Bordeaux in southern France. He tried. And in the beginning of these essays, he's not that personal. He doesn't really feel comfortable putting the I in his sentences. But by the end, you can just see that he's grown more self-assured about his own opinions. And he's quoting other philosophers less often. And I think I made a similar journey in my book, hesitant at first, you know, all these famous dead philosophers, what do I know? In fact, that was Montaigne's motto was, what do I know? And he came to embrace that, that they're no smarter than me. I've got my own opinions. And he takes that same approach to the subject of death, a sort of leap of faith that he saw death as a part of nature. And that essentially he said, and I'm paraphrasing that Illness and sickness doesn't cause death. Being born causes death, that we're all dying all the time, and that it's natural and that we're part of nature. So basically, nature's got your back, uh, to put it on in modern terms. Last question, and this is in the book, although it's a little bit of a throwaway admission at the beginning of the book. You tried to self-medicate for persistent melancholy with shrooms. How'd that turn out? Not so good. Yeah, I was in college, 20 years old, and I decided it would be a good idea to do this myself alone in a dorm room. And seriously, it was a bad experience. Mm. Um, apparently, you're not supposed to be alone when you do that. The good thing about philosophy is you can experience other realities without taking shrooms. <laughs> and <laughs> you feel like you're going crazy. No, because really, I'm serious, Trey. I think you asked in the beginning of this conversation, what is philosophy? And I said it's the love of wisdom. And that's true. But I'll add something to that. It is the ability to see the world otherwise. It's what I call the possibility of possibility. It is playing around with alternate realities, you can call it that, or I would say alternate visions, 
alternate ways of looking at the world. And that's where the real value of philosophy is, not necessarily at arriving at some truths or even guiding our ethical behavior, though there's a place for that. I think the most value in philosophy is these how-to questions, how to live a richer, more meaningful life. Well, on the subject of wisdom and providing people wisdom, I think there's no question that the Socrates Express in search of life lessons from dead philosophers will do just that for anybody who chooses to pick up this book. Even if you are familiar with some of these philosophers, there's no way you're familiar with all of them. And you do a great job of explaining very basic things in life and how some of the smartest minds of all time looked at these things, perhaps how you can tweak your own process. He is Eric Weiner, an award-winning journalist, speaker, and best-selling author. His latest is a good one, The Socrates Express. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for the time today, Eric, and take your time. Have a slow one. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can listen to all of our episodes through booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you do enjoy the show, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us grow the show. Until next time, I'm Trey Elling for Books on Pod. <laughs>